This is unstructured. Today I'm excited to bring a guest who is actually doing great things for humanity. His name is Jesse Richardson, and Jesse runs the site yourlogicalfallacyis.com. This site is wonderful, and I reference it all the time because it goes into all kinds of logical fallacies that trip us up every day. Nobody's perfect. How are you doing today, Jesse? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. And honestly, I actually hang around with a bunch of people online who are much smarter than I am, and they love your posters. And as a result, um, your posters have been served up to me uh, more than a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's happened, ironically enough, it's been served to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I have to confess, I tried to arm myself and did buy a, a deck of your cards. Oh, nice. And was really surprised to see that they're actually fulfilled here in Virginia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My warehouse is in Virginia Beach, and we sell some posters and a deck of critical thinking cards, but we also make those resources available under Creative Commons at the websites for teachers and students to use um, all around the world. Yeah, I wanted to go through a little bit of the history. I understand that you're a creative director for Flip, and this is an advertising or web building agency? Yeah, digital ad agency, yeah. Well, what brought you into the whole arena of logical fallacies and whatnot? Well, I've kind of been um, an amateur scholar of philosophy for since I was about 13 or 14 years old. Through a series of fortunate or unfortunate events, depending on how you want to look at it, I fell up backwards into the world of design and advertising. And it's been um, a really quite a lark. It's been a fun journey. Uh, but the the truth at the base of, of what advertising is, is that you're selling crap to people that they don't really need. And as a person who's a student of ethics and philosophy, um, <laughs> I had some misgivings about that and wanted to balance my ethical karma to some extent. So I got involved in politics and um, attempting to you know, contribute to the world in various ways. But really, it, it kind of became apparent to me that there was an alignment between um, this love I had for philosophy and, and rationality and thinking about things um, in terms of reason and what I do for my profession, which is advertising. And what's kind of relevant and interesting about that is that within advertising, what we're tasked to do a lot of the time is take a complex subject matter and communicate it really simply to distill what is, you know, the most relevant aspect of, of, of a proposition and to, you know, put that on a billboard or in a television commercial in such a way that it's compelling and persuasive. Um, and what I saw is that there is this, this really big gap um, when we look at what's happening in the world of politics and um, media, where people are trying to communicate these quite academic and dense ideas, and there is this real gap of engagement. Um, people are just not connecting to to these kinds of concepts, and 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 there's a they're like ships in the night, you know. That there's there's not a real a real sense of um, of, of connecting to what what's actually wrong here when we have actual fake news and when we have these distortions of truth, when we have these, you know, manipulations of people's belief structures um, to, you know, malevolent ends. 
Um, and so what I saw was the potential for us to take what we know in the marketing world and the advertising world and use that for good instead of evil, um, to be able to take the concepts of reason and philosophy, the enlightenment principles, and apply them to the same set of rigor that we use within de design and advertising to make them accessible and popular. That's amazing. And how in the world do you actually distill down such complicated topics to a very simple, easily digestible and identifiable message? I mean, take, for instance, your cards. You're taking a large concept and literally representing it on a single playing card. Mm -hmm. You are literally using one sentence to describe something. How did you go about that? And what was the most challenging concept that you had to convey? Oh, gosh, I don't know which, which would have been the most challenging one. It's kind of, it's one of those things that you learn as a copywriter, um, the craft of like taking something complicated and trying to, you know, take it down and down and down and down and down. I mean, Einstein um, famously said um, that, you know, genius is complexity made simple. Um, and the more you, I don't by any means claim to be a genius, but um, you, you get a glimpse of that when you, when, you, when you are in editing mode and you take something that is like, you know, someone has attempted to, you know, tell you what what's great about their product or, you know, is persuasive about their political argument or whatever else. And when you um, take that, like, paragraph of text and you go, okay, what's the really core idea here? The re there's a really interesting artifact that happens is when you hit it, there's this effect it's like a Venn diagram of meaning and everything intersects and it's got this layered effect and semantically and, um, you know, in terms of the communicability of it, it's just like, oh, yeah, that, that really, um, it's not just about being simple because anyone could be simple. But when you say something simple that, that has a lot of um, sort of unsaid meaning to it when it has a, a power beyond itself um, because it articulates things in a way that captures uh, a deeper meaning. Um, that's that's what you what you're chasing. Um, that's what I uh, attempted to do to some extent with with logical fallacies um, and cognitive biases to be able to still to distill each one of them down into a single simple sentence that essentially a ten year old can understand, not in a condescending way, but just in a, in a simplified sort of way. Um, so that that was the that was the, the the challenge in terms of the craft, and it, it seemed to resonate quite well because a lot of people use the sites to, um, you know, point out fallacies and various online arguments um, using the website address, which kind of becomes a an actual line because you can say your fallacy is dot com strawman or whatever else as a post to um, someone having misrepresented your argument, which is fantastic, and I must commend you too because you managed to make the cards and the messages to be fun and not condescending. And that is a very, very challenging thing to do because when you get into these circles and I hate to say Asperger's ease arguments, <laughs> it can get very, very ugly quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, seeing as that I'm, shall we say a remedial student, I'm wondering if you can help me out and describe the difference between a fallacy and a bias is a fallacy. Is a fallacy something you project or do and a bias is something that you have? That's a really good question, yeah. So um, I'll go with fallacies first. So um, a logical fallacy is a term within um, the school of philosophy, essentially. And what it is is it relates to the coherency of an argument. Um, so 
to understand what that means, we have to think about what is an argument. It's not a yelly situation where we're, you know, like disagreeing with each other violently. An argument in the philosophical sense is when we have premises, like just these points that we have um, that lead to a conclusion logically. Now, the really um, key thing to understand about logical fallacies is that it's not about the truth claim. You could argue for something that is completely um, false with a coherent, logically coherent argument, no fallacies in it. Conversely, you can say a complete lie. Um, You can say something that is completely not true. Uh, Sorry, the inverse. You can say that something is completely true and um, have entirely fallacious arguments to support it. But what happens more often than not is that when people make a claim that is untrue, they will tend to use logical fallacies to make their argument seem more compelling than it is. Um, so it's it's a um, interesting on interest, interestingly it's kind of like the the just because someone is making a um, a good argument doesn't necessarily mean what they're saying is true. Um, but we can to some extent say, well, you need to make a better argument for something if it's not holding up coherently, if it's not making sense logically that this follows from that, that you're actually using this kind of obfuscation. You're kind of using this this way to trick us or make us seem like it's something that it isn't. That's what a fallacy is essentially. And I, I suppose probably the best way to explain it is to give a couple of examples because then you go, oh, okay, I get it. And that's that's when the, the aha moment happens is when you go, right, I've had that. I've had that experience when someone misrepresents my argument. I wasn't saying that, but they've taken it and made it out to be something that it isn't. And that's what we call a straw man fallacy, which is a type of red herring. It's misrepresenting the truth of what you were really saying. Um, and everyone's had that experience when they've argued with someone online, right? Um, another one would be like an appeal to nature fallacy. So that's like, like saying something like, well, you know, how could, you know, like um, sunlight be bad because it's natural or, you know, um, we should eat soybeans or natural grains only because, you know, that's what our Paleolithic ancestors, you know, ate. And so because it's natural, therefore it's good. Um, but what, of course, that misses is that, just because something's natural doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Um, you can arsenic's natural and it can kill you. And, you know, um, you could argue that it's natural and we don't really necessarily want too much of that going on. Um, so the, the fact of something being natural isn't what makes it good. It's just that it works as a rhetorical device because so often we find that if something's natural, like, you know, for instance, eating vegetables or fruit, which is a natural thing, and we've evolved to be, you know, um, for that to have benefit to us um we go well as a method of correlation we associate natural things with things being good for us because usually they are but it's not the state of it being natural that actually that makes it so Um, and so saying that sunlight is natural therefore it's good um, and therefore we shouldn't wear sunscreen because it's a a conspiracy by um, farm big farmer and government to control us and you know infect us with their you know um distilled um chemtrail um vaccine propaganda um isn't really doesn't really make sense you know it's it's a long bow to draw and doesn't it doesn't hold together as an argument that makes me think of appeal to authority yeah and that's extremely powerful can lead to all kinds of havoc have you heard of the milgram experiment yeah yeah absolutely isn't that ultimately a demonstration of how powerful appeal to authority actually is absolutely and you know we're 
we're kind of taught from a very early age from our parents often um, to respect authority and to defer to authority and, you know, that we should do what our teacher says, we should do what our parent says, we should do what the police officer says um, and so on. And so we have this kind of um, default response to authority that serves us well as group animals a lot of the time, um, but also can have these um, very negative um, outcomes as we see in authoritarian states, um, you know, Weimar Germany, um, and, you know, um, various points in history where us not questioning authority and not having um, the capacity to be able to think independently as individuals um, results in very great evils indeed. Um, and one of the great things about liberal democracies and having, um, you know, the, the capacity for, um, you know, um, individual thought and freedom of speech and um, the free exchange of ideas is that we can mitigate those effects of just, um, you know, subservient um, control and um, abdication of power to authority. I guess I actually should take the time and discuss what the Milgram experiment is. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Milgram and his family were Jewish and his parents suffered in the concentration camps during World War II. And he wanted to make a study of what was it that would make normal people who ultimately became camp guards turn into complete monsters? So he devised an experiment which had three people in it. You had a teacher, a student, and a physician, or who was presumed to be a physician overlooking the experiment. And as the experiment went, the teacher would apply shocks to the student whenever the student got a question wrong. And a vast majority mm -hmm. of these teachers actually applied enough shock. And a surprising amount of people went all the way to what was they knew was a potentially fatal um, uh, level of electricity that they were administering to the subject. Um, and they were the majority. Yeah. And they... Um, and followed through with that. And so it was, it's a, it's one of these things that it's a, there's an interesting corollary here to advertising where everyone thinks they're not affected by advertising. Um, but everyone is, you know, like these, these companies aren't spending their massive budgets for, for fun. Um, there, there's some very real data showing that the, the, advertising is effective but we none of us feel like we're affected by ads but you know when we're making that split decision in the moment of the supermarket aisle we're the same as the people in the milgram experiment we're all affected by these these um you know biases in our um in our psyche where you know we um we take these cues of the, that person's got a lab coat on or this person is wearing a badge or that person is has this um role within government and so therefore I should believe what they say. And if when you say that point blank to someone, they go, no, no, of course not. I don't believe that. Um, that doesn't make it any less true that, that that reality has an effect upon us and how we react in the moment. We all like to think of ourselves as these very independent, rational beings, um, rational agents. But the truth is that we are all affected by various biases and various codified ways of behaving that have been inculcated on us for since we were born. And, um, you know, that act subconsciously before we have any awareness. I actually had a question on that and have been wondering, since you're an ad guy, maybe you can help answer this. Are they focused so much on the age groups of, say, 18 to 29 or whatever, because when people buy their first product, they'll tend to become their product like a Ford family for life? 
That, um, yeah, that's certainly part of um, many advertisers' strategies, but it's multifaceted, right? Like it depends on what your product is and what your objectives are. Um, so um, some brands like a Ford might take a very long-term view and want to, you know, be looking at a generational, you know, strategy. Much of the time, it's, it's a lot more um, immediate than that. And it's like the next um, the next quarter's earnings are far more of an imperative than, you know, like, your view of like the brand um, salience and, you know, locking people in. Um, so it depends on the product. It depends on the market. It depends on a lot of variables. Um, but certainly uh, w- one of the interesting things is that we um, attribute probably a little bit too much, um, uh, I suppose, credit to advertisers in terms of their ability to be able to understand people's psyches. Um worked in the industry for a long time there's certainly some very smart people that do some very sophisticated targeting techniques but a lot of it's just really kind of like just shots in the dark as well there's there's a i'm I'm much more surprised when i come across competence than when i come across incompetence that's um you know in every field um uh, so it's it's uh there, there is certainly a level of manipulation that occurs within all marketing and politics and um, media, um, but a lot of the time, it's 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 a lot of um, it. There's there's more malice and um, this idea of conspiracy and you know everyone rubbing their hands together and there's some grand global plan. Just if you've ever been a project manager, you know that it's very difficult to orchestrate five people doing something in synchrony, let alone you know five thousand. <laughs> true, true, true. So now let's um, divert to bias. Mm-hmm. So psychological biases, um, cognitive biases. Um, essentially, there's a um, was a, a relatively new field of study in the seventies, um, spearheaded by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, and his um, colleague. Thinking fast and slow. Yeah, correct. Um, author of um, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is an excellent book, by the way. Um, and uh, his um, partner in um, in crime and psychological research, Amos Tversky, um, who um, they uh, pioneered a lot of um, psychological experiments that essentially showed that we are a lot less rational than we presume ourselves to be when put in cer- certain circumstances. We can be primed to make decisions um, with, you know, various cues and um, manipulations that undermine this idea that we are perfectly rational agents that, you know, um, are going to do, you know, things absent, um, you know, our own personal biases, the um, environmental biases that we might be subjected to, social and cultural biases and expectations. There's a, there's a whole range of things that, that affect um, our judgment and we presume ourselves to be unaffected by them, much like advertising and advertising exploits biases as much as fallacies. Um, So uh, again, another, probably giving a couple of examples will help uh, elucidate and uh, make clear uh, how and why um, cognitive biases affect us. So um, a good one as an example is uh, the anchoring bias. Um, where essentially if you're in a financial negotiation, say for a salary or the price of a car, uh, you can, um, well, experimental research shows that um, whoever makes the first offer um, has a strong determining effect of the outcome of that negotiation. So if you anchor the price for, say, a used car and you say, well, this is you know going to cost you 10 grand um, and you're the used car salesperson, um, you might get a counter offer of well five grand. It's half that. Whereas if the um, 
the person who had started the negotiation had been the buyer and had said three grand, um, the natural kind of um, anchoring response to that would be six rather than five. So you can see how it plays out that the negotiation tends to be anchored to the initial price as a, as a kind of reasonable um, negotiation to a halfway point between those or thereabouts. Um, and this affects many different aspects, not just financial negotiations, but we can, um, with the framing effect and anchoring effect working in unison, um, there's ways to be able to prime various conversations, negotiations and situations in which we find ourselves in which um, whoever speaks first tends to um, dominate or at least guide the conversation in a particular direction. And if you're aware of how and why those things might affect um, the outcome, then you can manipulate them to your own ends. That makes me think of MSRP. It's like a universal anchoring. Sorry, what's MSRP? Um, Manufactured Suggested Retail Price. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, we have RRP here in Australia. Um, yes. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. But yeah, the, the um, when you have that, and oftentimes um, people will use, and it's a very good example of anchoring bias, actually, um, because people, um, many, uh, sorry, retailers will inflate their prices um, far above what was would be a reasonable price that anyone would pay for a particular product, and then when they give you a you know thirty percent off um, the RRP. Um, then you uh, feel like you're getting a bargain when, in fact, you're just spending money. True, or you're just using coupons and you think you're actually saving money off of that. Mm -hmm. Now, previously, yeah. you had mentioned um, Daniel Kahneman and mm -hmm. Abe Tversky. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Would you th agree that they are just simply proving with modern science what hucksters and the like have known throughout time? Uh, to some extent, yes. Yeah. Certainly, snake oil salespeople um, have been manipulating and using these these techniques. Um, but what Tversky and Kahneman did was they put it into a scientific framework that actually showed how and why that works and to what extent it works. Um, so it, it was um, really important for us to be able to quantify that in a way from the vague kind of you know idea of that yes people are manipulable which we we kind of already intuitively knew but it was always other people not us you see the really interesting thing that they did was show okay well how manipulable are people you know what percentage of people uh, can be manipulated and to what extent and how much do we all suffer these biases and, and one of the kind of surprising and counterintuitive and instructive results of their research is that everyone is subject to biases and this I think brings home a really important point that um, we kind of like we do do that thing where we we think this this that critical thinking is something that we are already masters of that um, we ourselves don't stop these biases we ourselves aren't subject to you know being manipulated by advertisers or politicians or the media um, and the more you learn about the subject matter the more intellectually humble you become and that's a really important and really instructive lesson because until we foster that intellectual humility in ourselves until we realize that we are all flawed and it's it's not a it's not a, a, a hard kind of indictment of our own intellect to be able to say I might be wrong about things and I'm manipulable and I'm malleable and I suffer biases and I can I, and and when we have that understanding an ironic thing takes place because by the very fact of recognizing that 
we actually mitigate those effects. We actually lessen them. We limit how much we can be manipulated by realizing that we can. And if we don't realize that we can be manipulated, if we don't realize that we are easily fooled, if we our biases and our prejudices can't be used against us, then we are so much more able to be manipulated. We are so much more open and receptive to um, being used by politicians and marketers and um, people with vested interests um, to manipulate us to their own ends um, and to our own deficit, to our own um, to our own destruction potentially as well. Yeah, it's funny. I interview a lot of people who are, shall we say, in the persuasion field, influence, those who have been trained by Robert Cialdini, et cetera. And one of the guys I interview, among his favorite types to deal with are cocksure people. Mm. This is somebody who ran prisons. Mm -hmm. And he would play into their egos so much. It was quite hilarious. He would come in with frumped up clothing and act like people were yelling at him, et cetera. He wound up doing a, a whole Columbo routine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Columbo or not. Uh, yeah, just one more thing, yeah. Exactly. He was dressed very slovenly and rattled and acted a little bit off and always asked, oh, 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 just one more thing. And they'd wind up revealing information to him because they were unsuspecting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a, it has a, the effect of um, disarming someone who presumes themselves to be in a superior position, which is a, you know, a very effective negotiating technique. Yeah. Now on the flip side, these biases exist for a reason, right? Um, for example, um, a negative or negativity bias kept us alive. Like if we heard a noise in the bush, the one who went to investigate the noise quite often, well, his genes didn't pass down. Absolutely. So, I mean, another um, kind of way that we can think about um, biases is their heuristics, their shortcuts of thinking. Um, and the thing is, is that they work a lot of the time, like the same with fallacies all the time too. So the appeal to nature fallacy is an example. Natural things are generally good for you, vegetables and fruit and grains and, you know, um, whereas, you know, um, you know, highly processed food, not so much. And so it's a reasonable inference for us to make. It's reasonable for us to think, yeah, natural things are good. You know, it's, it's, that's not a silly thing to think in the first place. Um, but where we, where it falls down, where, you know, we need to be careful is when we, conflate that kind of general rule as an absolute rule. Um, and then the reason that that's, that's um, a really important thing for us to understand is that people take that, that presumption that we have of that, yeah, natural things are good, therefore all natural things are good, and they'll sell us some homeopathy because it's natural water whatever else. And, you know, we don't get our radiation therapy for cancer treatment like Steve Jobs infamously, you know, um, uh, regretted on his deathbed that he, um, you know, that he believed in, in that instead of, you know, um, empirical science. Um, and, Bob Marley as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it, there, there is this, um, there's this, you know, this very real um, uh, negative that happens as a result of something that is generally okay and generally good. And it's, I think it, there's a mistake we make in trying to frame this as an, in an absolute sense. It's kind of contextual and independent. It's okay for us to make these heuristic general kind of inferences a lot of the time. It's okay for us to go, yeah, generally speaking, like let's, you know, run around a bit and eat healthy natural food. That's great. You know, no problem with that at all. Um, but 
like do please don't presume that just because it comes from a pharmaceutical company it's you know inherently bad and processed and is going to kill you um because um you know taking um you know antibiotics is going to be a lot better for your bacterial infection than putting crystals on your seventh chakra very very true and of course anything bad can be good anything good can be bad depending on the application and dosage yeah that actually reminds me of Tim Noakes out of South Africa. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's had an ongoing battle with the, shall we say, fluid companies like Gatorade and sports drinks and things like that, because we are pushed all the time mm-hmm. to overhydrate, drink water, drink water, drink water. And if you drink too much water, well, you actually can die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of hydration. They have that problem at um, raves and even some races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it, like everything, it's dosage. You know, you eat too many carrots, you'll die. You drink too much water, you'll die. Um, and again, it's the same mistake that we make, that we try um, to reduce things to absolutes. And this is a peculiar aspect of Western thought generally, is that we have this kind of very axiomatic view, I call it, um, where we try to reduce things to like this absolute rule that we can apply to everything. It's a um, with a philosophy, it's a very Kantian idea. It's um, this idea that of, of, of universal kind of axiomatic um, deontology, where we we take we want to go. Okay, here's the absolute role. How do we apply it to everything? Um, how do we make this the thing that is really the the base truth of everything? And I think what the reality is so much of the time is it's not those absolutes. It's not those axiomatic things that are. Uh, representative of what's really going on. It's often a lot more complicated and nuanced and grey. And this presents a real problem um, when we get into the sphere of like politics and healthcare and all these other things, because those simplistic narratives, they're a lot easier to sell. And there are a lot, um, people latch onto them. They, they attach to our heuristic mindsets much more easily than if we um, have this much more, you know, it's much more difficult to prosecute a case for a more, you know, nuanced and, and contingent and contextual view of things. But that's the real world. And it's, it's, it's less sexy a lot of the time, but it's the truth. And the truth has a, has a real power and has real outcomes and consequences. That actually makes me think about um, the tax cuts that happened recently here in America. Mm-hmm. There was a group of people who were very against the tax cuts. And when people were receiving less back on tax returns, they took it as an opportunity mm-hmm. to say, oh, see, the tax cuts weren't that great. You're getting less money back. So therefore, it's not really meaningful. Not taking into account the fact that, uh, no, if you pay less in, you get less out. Yeah, yeah. And it just sounded so smooth. See, mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't get any return. Yeah. Obviously, it's only for the rich. Yeah. it's um, And it ignores like a lot of the time, you know, nuanced arguments are a lot less palatable to anyone with an ideological agenda, whatever their ideological agenda is. Um, so it's you know, economics is a particularly complex area of, of, of study and, you know, many economists disagree about almost everything <laughs> and variables at play, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how, how things actually work within that sphere. Um, so, you know, asserting with, with certainty how anything in particular works is, is, is difficult at the best of times. Um, but, 
it's it's a it's a really unfortunate thing that there is this inverse relationship where the more sure somebody is of something um the more successful they will tend to be in the sphere of politics and media and everything else because they're prosecuting a simplistic agenda that gets a lot more traction whereas the people that are a little bit more circumspect and, and less sure of themselves um tend to um not get nearly so much traction and that that brings to like my favorite quote of all time by Bertrand Russell which is the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are so sure of themselves but wiser people so full of doubts and i think that kind of encapsulates the the entirety of of that you know um what's wrong there is that and um in experimental research that's borne out with the dunning-kruger effect um which is a particularly interesting um bias and area of study um because we see this very clear gradient going from one side of ignorance to the other are you familiar with the dunning-kruger effect oh i absolutely am but i would love it if you explained it i think we all suffer it yeah, we do, and that, exactly. And some, and and the more we, well, on the, on the meta level, it's interesting. If we know that we suffer, we suffer it less, right? So, but there's this. Um, what the Dunning Kruger effect showed, essentially, um, in experimental research, is that the more um, sort of ignorant we are about something, the more confident and cocksure we're likely to be. Um, and but one of them lessened like teenagers, exactly, right? It's like you. Was that I'm paraphrasing poorly here, but it's like um, I couldn't believe um, how much my old man uh, uh, learned between the ages of 14 and 21. He really seemed to wise up in that time, you know. So uh, it's we we have this a, a huge blind spot when we're ignorant um, to there's we there there are unknown unknowns to um, quote Donald Rumsfeld, um, and he was mocked for that, by the way. Oh yeah, and he was actually dead on. Yeah. I, 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 I have. I don't. I'm not a big fan of Donald Rumsfeld, but I'll, I'll concede that point. Strategically, that's anyone that's involved in any form of strategy knows that there's no unknowns, no 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 nons. Um, yeah, absolutely. But the the thing is, is that like with the Dunning Kruger effect, what we have is this really clear set of research that shows us that the more um, people understand things, um, the less likely they are to be sure of themselves. but um, And what most people know about the Dunning-Kruger effect is that it's ignorant people are the most confident. Um, and that's a really interesting finding in and of itself and explains a lot of, um, you know, different aspects of, of, you know, how people react in the political and social and medical and lots of different areas, you know, that the, the reason why anti-vaccination um, and all these other things tends to get a lot of traction is that people are really confident because they read one Google article on a blog you know, that told them this thing and they, you know, don't really have a lot of a body of knowledge. Um, whereas you'll talk to a, like an expert immunologist and their language will seem so much more caveated. They'll say, well, what we know is this, but we're unsure about this aspect of this. And there's still some more research about that. It's like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's like got all these gray areas. He's really not sure, but yeah, he's all squishy. Try to pin yeah. him down. But this person over here, they are rock solid. They're really sure of themselves, you know. So what we found is that the the more domain knowledge someone had about a particular area, um, the more likely they were to underestimate their own capacity to be able to understand and their own you know, expertise. Um, so it's this really interesting artifact and aspect of human psychology that we go from a state of being hugely overconfident the more ignorant we are, and then hugely underconfident the more we know so the take out of that is the more we know the more we know we don't know have you ever heard of gel man amnesia 
No, no, please enlighten me. I feel like gel man amnesia is kind of a cousin to Dunning Kruger. Like I work in tech and I'll read articles and I'll be like, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they're talking about. This is untrue. Mm -hmm. Well, with gel man, if you are the expert on something and sorry, I forgot the, the name of it. Yes. It's fantastic. Please go on. Sorry. Oh, no problem. But yeah, you're an expert on a subject and you read articles and they're wrong about the subject. But yet, when you read an article about another subject, you just automatically believe it, which is quite crazy. If they're wrong about something you do know, then odds are they're likely to be wrong about something you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And we don't transpose our understanding and knowledge of just how um, inaccurate media can be. when it's our own domain of knowledge and realize that it's just as sensationalistic and just as shallow and just as likely to be off the mark when they're talking about almost anything else, depending on the media organization, of course. You should have a card for that one too. I feel like it's really closely related to Dunning-Kruger. Yeah, there's the same mechanisms are certainly at play there um, in terms of that. Yeah, there's a, um, we have, um, and again, um, it's unknown unknowns in terms of our blind spots, right? We don't we don't have a clear understanding of of what it is that we are unaware of, and so what we do is we transpose what we do know and presume that to be an accurate representation. Um, and the really interesting thing is is that the more um, you start to doubt yourself, the more you start to be circumspect and intellectually humble, and um, you know. Um, a little bit less uh, uh, sure of your own conclusions and your own apparatus to be able to come to conclusions, um, the, m- the more likely you are to actually be closer to the truth, yet the less likely you are to seem like you are, right? And so there's this, this really terrible consequence in the, in the sphere of how we relate to each other where we, um, we essentially, the, the narratives that get traction are the ones that are more likely to be wrong. And we see this happening on a kind of like you can look at it within a particular organization as well. So often within group dynamics within a company, really confident, loud voices will tend to dominate how a group um, dynamic um, is um, is, a, is is working um, in terms of, you know, whether it's a strategic meeting or idea generation or something else like that. The voices you want to be listening to as a leader or, you know, a, the head of a company are not those loud confidence voices because they're arrogant and that is indicative of they lack the capacity to be able to analyze things well and and have you know um, an amount of um, intellectual humility to be able to take a step back and you know really consider things Um, it's the quiet voices that get you know trampled over that don't um, you know tend to you know speak up for themselves that tend to be the more logical the more rational the more intelligent um, perspectives Um, but they don't generally want to you know yell above the confident um person that's you know um dominating the conversation yeah you almost have to design your teams with that in mind mm-hmm. in a manner because you do want the brash person sometimes sure they could be uh, leadership or inspirational to others around them but you may want to control for that like having the quiet one with the loud mm-hmm. one versus- there are ways to do that we're actually just about to release a project in the next couple of months um, about uh, oh, perfect. it's about creative, um, you know, idea generation and and divergent thinking that um, goes into um, various um, techniques to use to mitigate that within groups. One of the really interesting things um, JFK did 
is that he would, um, amongst his advisors, not speak first. He was um, cognizant of the effect of um, his power and position, and he'd have all of his advisors speak before he proffered his own opinion. So that's one example from a systems design point of view where you can mitigate the effects of that. If you're a wise leader, you need to be aware of those power dynamics and how you know that affects it and how do you elicit the voice of the, the circumspect and the introverted. Um, writing it down is a really good way to do it as well. So there's, um, there's a few different brainstorming techniques where you essentially allow everyone to have a kind of equal voice and input to things um, without it being determined by the social dynamics of like, you know, this person had this idea and spoke first and spoke loudly and everyone kind of bounced off that and the politics of personalities was therefore the determinant of the strategy of the company when in actuality what we should have been doing was anonymizing our ideas and evaluating them anonymously and then talking about them openly in separate groups and you know coming to a filtered understanding or getting a third party who wasn't involved in the idea generation to be the evaluator of them um, while they were anonymized you know there's, there's various ways that you can you can mitigate those sorts of effects um, but it all comes down to the same kinds of mechanisms of, of, of um, you know, our foibles and our faults and our biases are ever present. And if we're aware of them, there's, there's so many different ways that we can help to offset them, but we need to become aware of them first. Otherwise, we're lost. That's good to hear. So with the biases and fallacies right now, you're pointing out the problems, but it seems like you're starting to work on maybe providing solutions or mitigating them. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's a funny thing. Like I, I kind of like this whole project came about from a kind of epiphany moment where I realized that, um, you know, as a species, we might be doomed if we don't um, learn how to think for ourselves um, en masse. And after arguing with a lot of people online um, who were very wrong about lots of different things, um, I realized that I wasn't changing their minds nearly as much as I wanted to. And so um, after feeling a little bit despairing for a while, I realized, well, let's look at this strategically. If this was a brief given to me and I was, you know, thinking about this of how do I solve this actual problem, um, what would I do? And um, the realization I had is that um, it's a lot easier for us to teach the next generation to think independently than it is to teach adults who are very mired in their views. So um, what I tried to do was um, to facilitate um, teaching anyone and everyone, but especially kids, um, how to think for themselves and to let them, you know, draw their own conclusions rather than trying to enforce a particular way of thinking about the world on them to say, well, here's the tools of reason. Here's the capacity to think for yourself. Here's how we should analyze media and those that would seek to manipulate us. Um, I trust you to be able to, you know, um, hopefully draw a logical, rational and intelligent conclusion as a result of you having these skills rather than telling you this is the correct way to act um, because my father did it before me or, you know, this is the way that we do things or whatever else. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of a, a quotation a friend of mine often uses that science advances one funeral at a time or something like that. Mm, yes. Yeah, quite. I think that's true of politics and everything else as well is that, you know, people become mired in their views and, um, you know, it's a, um, it's like there's, there's one death at a time is the, is the, is the meter by which we move forward to some extent. And we've seen an incredible amount of progress over the last 400 years because of the principles, because of in particular the American project and um, what's happened in Europe since the French revolution. Um, and, you know, this, this kind of exaltation of, um, 
individual, um, you know, capacity for uh, um, inalienable rights and freedom of speech and liberal democracy um, that really underpin philosophically um, why we are living in the most peaceful, prosperous time in history with all this wonderful potential, despite all of the, you know, very real existential threats that, um, that face us. Um, and so we live in, as I, I said to you in the preamble to our conversation, Eric, the most interesting of times, um, because there is there is so much at stake at the moment in terms of, you know, where our world's going to go in the next 50 years and um, what we do now and how we act and the institutions and, you know, the way that we, we structure our education system in particular, um, but all of the aspects of our society is going to be um, so important and it's becoming more and more important. And, um, you know, a lot of people are really despairing of the polarised nature of, of politics and, um, you know, that we're talking past each other and that we're not connecting. And I think we really need to listen to each other and try and come to a shared understanding rather than just butting heads against each other. And, and reason and philosophy and being able to engage in civilised conversation and understand each other is, I think, the only way forward in that way. That's a perfect point to close this conversation. And people need to follow you and go to schoolofthought.org. Everything leads out of there, correct? Correct. Um, and the other sites are yourfallacy.is or yourbias.is. Um, and you can download all of the materials um, there for free. And um, we'll be releasing um, some more free Creative Commons materials later this year. Fantastic. And thanks so much for coming on. Cheers, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.